You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is Episode 50, covering the week of November 7th through November 11th, 2016. Glad to have you back on the program. We had a lot of interesting stuff this week, so can't wait to get started to talk about it. But again, just uh, some housekeeping. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you like this uh, this presentation, you like this program, you like the website, please remember to make a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. Uh, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. Uh, for less than 5 bucks a month, you can become a member and help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Uh, also, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on YouTube, and help share our material. That's the only way we can get our information out there. So uh, a lot of you all are doing this, and that's great, but uh, please also feel, uh, feel free to do that. If you have not been doing that, f- please feel free to share our material and uh, let people know what we're talking about. You may not always agree with what we say, and sometimes the material is put up there to be provocative, uh, and also uh, explore different elements of the Southern tradition that you may not thought about before. But and this week is uh, is highly indicative of that uh, because uh, we have some material up there that uh, most people uh, would say, well, that's that's interesting. I'd never you know, thought about it that way before, particularly in a very monolithic view of the South. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, the first piece of the week uh, was. Uh, entitled Supping with Norman Lear, and it's written by Thomas Landis. And this was um, written in 1995, so it's, uh, it's 20 years old. But not much has changed. And at the beginning of the piece, an editor's note said that you know Norman Lear, who this piece is about, a lot of people don't know who that is if you're younger, but um, he, uh, he made some headlines not long ago uh, when he started calling Donald Trump's speech, quote-unquote, hate speech. And... Uh, Lear uh, had an, had, heads an organization called People for the American Way. And so People for the American Way has done a lot of work. It's a left-wing organization to undermine American education, particularly traditional American education. And uh, Thomas Landis used to write a lot about that. And we've talked about some of his other education pieces on the website before. Uh, but in this particular case, it's how there were several groups, uh, particularly the National Association of Evangelicals, who were pledging to work together with people for the American way um, to help uh, advance American education. Tom Landis says this is a, this is a bad idea. And so the interesting thing about this particular piece and where, are, where we are in modern politics today, that is, um, we, we hear a lot of talk about uh, you know, putting, uh, walking across the aisle and working with the other side. What that often means, though, is that they, the other side is not going to compromise very much at all. They want you, they want us, uh, whether it's exploring the Southern tradition uh, traditional America, whatever it is. They want the traditionalists to compromise on their particular views and their particular positions. It, the other side is not going to compromise. 
Uh, and so when you look at you know Donald Trump and and um, a lot of things he was saying, of course he's won the election, uh, and so a lot of people are very upset about that. We'll talk about that in, a, in just a minute here with uh, another piece. But when you look at what's going on, um, I think this is this idea that somehow the left and those who hate the Southern tradition are willing to compromise is is a false idea, and we can see that clearly right now, that they don't really ever want to compromise. It's not really about compromise. It's about getting their way. And for traditionalists, the key here is that you, you, you don't back down. You continue to advance your position because if you can articulate your position, then you can win. So this People for the American Way had a lot of input, a lot of impact in Southern uh, boards of education where they were uh, able to uh, rid Southern curriculums of um, Christianity. Uh, they were able to infuse Southern education and education across the United States with their progressive worldview. Uh, they're basically eroding pro-family education. This is why a lot of people are starting to homeschool because, you know, in the last 20 years, this has become dominant. And so Landis said, look, don't, don't be fooled by this. Don't go out there and join up with these people because the only thing that's going to happen in that scenario is that we're going to lose. Uh, we won't win because they're not going to compromise and come to our side. The the quest is going to be for us to go to their side. So we have this situation where, um, and, and Lear was, you know, he's not pro-Southern at all in any way. But we have these leftists, and so we're kind of talking about the left this week uh, in this particular week of, of material. What kind of leftists does the South have? And it had them, and it still has them. And I think that the key to that is understanding who Southern liberals really are, um, what they want. Now, if you want to have an idea where the South means something, then you have to have people on the left who love the South. There has to be a conscious effort to understand the South. You may not like everything about the South. You may not like everything about the South's past, but you have to like the South. And there used to be a lot of people in uh, the United States who thought that way. Uh, we, in fact, we talk about two of them uh, this week. Uh, and so you don't have to sup with Norman Lear to find leftists in the South. A real Southern leftist is not going to be against the South. They are going to admire the Southern tradition admire uh, Southern culture and history and heritage, they're going to like those things. And so when you look at the piece, for example, on Tuesday, the legacy of Francis Butler Simpkins. Now, Francis Butler Simpkins was a historian, and he was a leftist historian, but he loved the South. In fact, he wrote a number of, of books about the South, and he wanted to write a biography of Jefferson Davis that he never did. Um, and this piece is written by Grady McWinney, who's um, uh, now dead. But uh, McWinney said that 
Doc Simpkins. Doc Simpkins was his advisor when he was writing his master's degree. He was getting his master's degree, writing his master's thesis. Uh, Doc Simpkins uh, said when he was dying that, I hope you can help me defend the toleration of the past, which I think is the chief duty of the historian. The toleration of the past. What we have now in America, and if you look at, for example, Norman Lear, and you look at leftists, we don't have a toleration for the past. It's an intolerant view of the past, that we have to erase anything really before 1975. Uh, and Simpkins wrote one time, historians of the South should not be, quote, ashamed of the peculiar standards of their section. Some of them write the literature of accommodation. The Southern historian Douglas Southall Freeman, who has won the greatest applause, writes of the heroes of the Confederacy without arguing whether or not they were good. The best recognized historian of the Old South, R.H.B. Phillips, pictures plantation life without assuming that it was a grand mistake. Another historian examines the literature of the poor whites without moralizing against them because they were not as thrifty as their social betters. A recent historian of the New South joins William Faulkner in exposing the true tragedy of the South. It was not the defeated Appomattox, but the truckling of both scalawag and bourbon, both materialist and idealist, to alien values. So he's saying we need to understand the South for what it was. Sometimes you're going to like that past, sometimes you're not, but you need to tolerate that past. And I think what we are seeing now is we don't tolerate that past. Norman Lear was not tolerating the traditional South. And also, we need to understand there were Southern liberals. who may have had a different view of where the South should go, but yet they were still uniquely Southern. And they still liked Southern culture and history and tradition. Much of it. And so not all, the South was never monolithic. And I think that's also, we need to understand that there are many Souths. Many different Souths. The South even had within the South its own sections, its own, its own identities among people. There's not just one South. And that's okay. Because understanding what the South is and these many Souths can help us understand better the Southern tradition and who we are as a people, who Southerners are as a people. But the key to all that is admiring the South. And I think that's something that's being lost. That's, that's the main casualty of this intolerant view of the South. Southerners don't want to be who they are. Mel Bradford used to say, remember who we are. Who are we? Do, and, and a lot of, um, even uh, you know, Clyde Wilson's book that he wrote in 1980, you know, Why the South Survived, um, he had a representation, a sampling of not just quote-unquote, conservative Southerners, but also people on the left, people, but people who loved the South. That was the key to all of this. People who love the South need to be uh, aware that that is a valuable position, whether you're on the left or the right. And I'm going to talk about that in the last piece, because the last piece, uh, as, as I expected, um, 
there were people who were highly critical of this last piece because it did not fit with their monolithic view of the South. But this is something we should um, recognize and celebrate. Uh, that people on the, there are liberal Southerners who, who believe in the South and love the South and would love to have a balkanization where Southern culture can be protected and celebrated and understood and tolerated. So this is a really good piece on uh, Francis Butler Simpkins and how uh, Simpkins was not always considered to be a quote-unquote conservative Southerner, but he loved the South. And he was worried that tradition was going to be destroyed because of modern America. And I think that's, that's part of it. And where, you, know, you look at how all this is happening, and I think that the piece that we ran on Wednesday, uh, written by Clyde Wilson, entitled Sherman's March, again, this is an older piece. He wrote it years ago. But this shows the intolerance for the South. It talks about the lies of Sherman Mar Sherman's March and how he said that, uh, you know, quote, a whole team of third-string half-baked carpetbagger historians of the type that now staff all Southern universities are presented to make at best the best possible case for the glory, brilliance, justice, and benevolence of Sherman's operations in Georgia and the Carolinas. He says the, pecu the peculiarity is that much of the actual evidence that manages to come through contradicts the rationale that is presented. Historians used to at least pretend to dig into the primary sources and examine all the evidence before making judgments, but now they're rewarded by how well they cherry-pick bits to support the already established line. And so he goes through all the different lies of Sherman's march and how it wasn't really that great of a military feat and how it was so destructive. But this is representative of the intolerance for the South. Southerners were bad, so they deserved a beating. And I, I wrote that, you know, when I talked about uh, American foreign policy a couple of weeks back. So if Southerners were bad, they deserved a beating. Today, Southerners have been bad. Their tradition is awful, so they deserve a beating. They don't even deserve a, a fair assessment because they're just bad. And when you look at historical literature that's coming out, it's all just bad. These people are bad. They need to be relegated to the dustbin of history, the, the bad others. And that is really the tragedy of this entire thing. Because what happens when you sup at Norman Lear, you get education systems that don't appreciate Southern tradition. What happens when you don't tolerate the past, you get garbage like this coming from modern historians about the South. I talked last week about a book about American foreign policy and how it was uh, written basically from the 1850s. You could have just gone back to the 1850s and dredged up all of the attacks against the South, and there you go. There you have his book this uh, prestigious up-and-coming historian from 
uh, Princeton writes this book, and uh, it's actually, I think he went to Penn, but he's teaching at Princeton. But uh, he's an Ivy Leaguer, and here you go. He's, he's an avowed socialist, and so you have this particular phenomenon of not appreciating the South for what it was. And that leads to the piece on Thursday. Donald Trump wins on November 8th, and now California wants to secede. So this actually shows you that these people are not very principled in their attack on the South. And what I mean by that is they run around saying it was treason for the South to leave. If Donald Trump had not won, none of these people would be talking about this. But what is interesting about this is that they're running around saying, oh, now California should secede. So should Oregon and Washington. In fact, there's a, in Oregon, there's a ballot initiative to try to get a vote on secession on the ballot in two years. Uh, a piece we're going to run on Monday talks about how this has been going on in California for a couple of years. And uh, the idea is to have it, a vote on it in 2019. So this is going to speed up the process by far. But what's interesting here is that Again, if this was not California, if you just put this, took this and put it in a vacuum, people would be saying, well, this is treason as long as it's not a leftist. When the leftists want to secede, that's fine. That's fine. We should all look at this and say, well, you know, this is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you really can't do it. And there are people on the left saying this. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't do it. But these are the same people that would denigrate the South, uh, say that the Southerners were were traitors in 1860 and 61. And I can guarantee you there will be quote-unquote conservatives who will come out and say, you can't do that, that's treason. And of course, after Obama was elected president in 2008, people were talking about secession then, people on the right. So it goes to show you that the idea of secession is not a bad idea. Uh, people talk about it all the time, and really, I mean, as we said in this in this podcast, as we've done at the Abbeville Institute, there really there really isn't any legal hurdle to secession. Uh, it's something that I think we should be having a discussion. It's a healthy discussion to have. Should people allowed to ha- should people be allowed to have self determination, and should that tradition then be tolerated? Because that's essentially what we're saying. These leftists are intolerant. And so at the end of the day, why not let them have their own country where they can have their own little socialist utopia? I mean, that would be perfect. So uh, for the rest of the United States, because we wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. And maybe, just maybe, this kind of balkanization would be good for people, for the American people, because you would be able to have the government you want, honestly. Why should anyone on the left suffer under a government they don't want? Now, uh, the majority in a state, now see, the states are different. In breaking apart states, the state actually has to give consent to be broken apart. And this is actually interesting because, uh, you know, if it says that expressly in the Constitution, the state has to be given its, has to give its consent to break apart. But it doesn't say that about the union. Because, see, the union, does. this is how the founding generation, how you know, that secession from the Union would be entirely possible because it says nothing in the Constitution about the Union having to give its consent to be broken apart, 
but yet a state does because a state is a sovereign entity. The union is not. It only has expressly granted or delegated powers. And I think that's the key part of all of this. And so if California wants to secede, why not? Of course, I wrote this piece and linked to a few things. It's just a, a you know a little uh, short little piece. But I think Southerners should be allowed to say, yeah, California, go your own way. We should support this. We should support this. Just as we su- should support any type of independence movement within the United States. And finally, that getting to that point, we have a piece by John Shelton Reed entitled Why No Southern Nationalism. Now, this is a two-part piece. I only put the second part on the website. Uh, and this one raised a lot, of, uh, a lot of chatter, some of it not very good, because you have some people out there that um, are... Uh, I'm trying to be kind here, but they... They have, again, a monolithic view of the South. And John Shelton Reed is a, is a Southern liberal, but he loves the South. He loves, and actually he says this. Uh, he, this is a quote, and this is where people um, got very upset, or some people who really don't care for their opinion anyways, but He says, moreover, what I take to be the accidental link between Southern sectionalism and white supremacy is severed. The South can begin to profit from the reservoir of affection for the region which exists among black Southerners. For good good reason, most have heretofore looked outside the South for allies, but once black Southerners are assured that their hard-won rights are secure and guaranteed the respect due to partners in the Southern enterprise, it would not surprise me to find many prepared to make common calls with whites on their homeland's behalf. There are already signs of this, and the process may well accelerate as blacks realize that they are now much more of a presence in southern state capitals than in the U.S. Congress. This was written in 1982, ladies and gentlemen. 1982. Uh, We've written about this on the website before, how uh, when you look at power, black, black Americans, in this case black southerners, have a much more powerful role in southern states than they do anywhere else. When you look at uh, their control of cities and and uh, you know help uh, control state legislatures. There's a lot of power there. They don't have it as much of it in Washington D.C. And then he says, you know, am I serious? Well, not always. To tell the truth, I don't know that a full-blown Southern nationalism would appeal to me, but it wouldn't surprise me to see it emerge. And I, for one, would find an American politics where the proper balance between federal power and decentralization was subject to debate, preferable to one where an arrogant central government recognizes no limits on its authority. And politics aside, the cultural balkanization of the U.S. strikes me as almost wholly desirable. I'm not one of those who feel that one New York, California, or Colorado is too many, but God knows one's enough. And he says that Southerners should learn from the South 
from, the, from themselves. What does the South have to offer Southerners? And he says, one thing other Americans can learn from us, if we will demonstrate it to them, is humility. Tempting as it may be to dictate to others, preach at them, and generally push them around, Southerners of all people should restrain themselves. He says, it would be naive to expect that our solutions can be a model for other regions and presumptuous to tell them how to run their affairs. I take that to be the beginning of wisdom in these matters. When rulers lack the wisdom or fail to act on it, they invite the separatist response. So here we have 1982 saying, look, what people could learn is humility from the South, if anything. And we have we have a South that's not monolithic. We have John Shelton Reed, who's kind of a Southern leftist. We have black Southerners, white Southerners, but they're still Southern. Eugene Genovese wrote that in his book, Roll, Jordan, Roll. Southern culture, Southern culture overall has had a heavy input from black Southerners. I mean, I see eye to eye on a lot of issues, but we, but white Southerners and black Southerners do see eye to eye on many issues because they share a common attachment to the land in the South. Black Southerners have been here for now uh, approaching, well, uh, 400 years. Longer than many white Southerners have been here. 400 years. And you look at things that are, you know, Southern cultural icons, music in particular, Southern music would not be the same without the input of black Southerners. So if these people, as some people say, well, black people aren't Southerners, and I think that's the most idiotic statement I've ever heard in my life, then what are they? Then what are they? If they're not Southerners, what are they? So we need to look at the South in a different way. I think it's to, to say the South is monolithic is to ignore, uh, and I, I know the left like to use this term, diversity, but it's to ignore the richness of Southern culture, uh, the richness of Southern religion, the richness of Southern uh, literature, the richness of Southern music, the richness of Southern food, the input of various peoples and making that that tapestry work in the South. The richness of Southern language, which is not monolithic either. You can go anywhere in the South and you can hear a different type of Southern accent. And to believe somehow that the South was merely created in a monolithic way is wrong. And to say that certain people aren't Southerners is wrong, particularly if they've lived here for 400 years. It's just a wrong position. So what are they if they're not Southerners? And so this is what we have to find, a tolerance for the past on every side to understand. And I think that's the true tragedy of all of this attack on the South is that we lack understanding of each other. When you look at Southern history in an objective way and you find that there was a tremendous amount of tolerance in the South, particularly in the antebellum South, and then among lots of people in the South moving forward for this tapestry of Southern culture, that's the real tragedy because um, when you do that, when you lose that tolerance for tradition, when you lose a tolerance for understanding what the South is, you create a lot of problems. Uh, the, the key is to get everyone understanding that they are Southern and that there is a 
there is a very interesting and uh, diverse Southern past. And I think that's one thing we try to explore in you know, the Abbeville Institute. What is true and valuable in the Southern tradition? What parts of the Southern tradition are worth exploring? What parts can we say are good or uh, interesting? And what parts can we leave behind? Of course, uh, you know, John Shelton Reed would say, well, I mean, this whole idea of white supremacy was not uniquely Southern. I've said that on this podcast. I've written about it, and it wasn't. So, uh, you know, leave that part behind. Uh, understand that we not like everything in the past, but it is the past, and it's worth exploring. And even out of that, we can find good examples to move forward. One of those is the principles of decentralization. As John Shelton Reed says, as I wrote about in California Exit or Cal Exit, we should, we should applaud this because people are actually, by default, recognizing that the Southern tradition is still valuable in their own way, in their own way. And I think that's the, the thing that we can get out of our study of the past and looking at Southern leaders uh, you know, someone like Francis Butler Simpkins, who was not a, a conservative, but writing about Jefferson Davis because he thought Jefferson Davis was worthy of study. Not to denounce him, but because he's worthy of study because he's important. And to understand who they are, we can have a, a Douglas Southall Freeman say that Robert E. Lee was a great man. What is wrong with that in modern America? We need to, get, we need to not line up with the Norman Lears, who are hostile to tradition, but line up with people like Simpkins and Reed, who are not hostile to tradition, particularly Southern tradition. And so if we can do that, if we can, if we can have this appreciation for the complexity of the South and what made the South great and unique, and when I've said before in this podcast, the South is America, what made that possible? When we can look at those things as valuable components of America, whether it's humility, if John Shelton Reed says this is what we need to understand, or whether it's the political tradition, whatever it is, if we can do that, we will be on our way to recognizing the glory and the beauty of Southern culture and history and tradition. Until next time, good day. Thank you.